This is Anthony Morganti. Welcome to my podcast for the joy of photography. Welcome to this week's episode of the For the Joy of Photography podcast. In this week's episode, I'm going to answer some of your questions. As you probably can imagine, I receive a lot of questions. And very recently in my newsletter, I solicited even more. I asked people to send me questions that I could answer in the podcast. The only requirement was it had to be a question that I could answer with words as opposed to a question where I have to demonstrate something. That's because most of the people that tune into this podcast actually listen to it. They don't actually watch it on YouTube. They're listening to it on whatever podcast streaming app they might use. So with that, I've asked for questions that I could answer with words. And as it turned out, I received a lot of questions. And a lot of those questions are questions I've received through the years, like over and over again. So what I'm going to do is in this episode, I'm going to answer five of the questions that I most often receive. These are questions that through the years I've received many, many times, and I actually have answered in probably other videos here and there. But since I keep receiving these questions, it doesn't hurt to give them answers again. So um, what I'm going to do is have slides, those of you that are watching the video that show the question, and those of you that have asked the questions, uh, just be aware I probably paraphrased what you wrote to make it shorter. So just, you know, so you understand that I'm really answering your question. I might have paraphrased uh, your email to me, uh, mainly to fit it on the slide. Now, the first question, again, is a question I've received all the time. Why are some, and oddly only some, of the photos I share on Instagram blurry when they appear sharp on my computer? This is a very common issue uh, when you're uploading any image to any social media site. Many times it will look horrible on the site. And that is mainly due to the size you used when you uploaded the image. When Let's talk about Instagram. Uh, Instagram has very specific uh, size requirement it needs to display. So every image, when someone looks at it on their phone, looks exactly the same size. So what they do is they resize all the images they receive. So if you send an image to them and it's not the size they want, they're going to resize it. Now, what size do they want? Well, as it currently stands, if you're sending them a square image, it should be 1,080 pixels along any of the sides, all right? If it's a horizontal image or a, a landscape image, it should be 1,080 pixels along that long side. So if you're sending them an image that, let's say, is, for the you know, whatever, 5,000 pixels on the long side, it's a horizontal image, they're going to downsize it so that when it's presented on someone's phone, it's, you know, uniform in size with everything else. 
So the point is, whenever they're doing the downsizing or the resizing, it tends to be not as good as if you did the resizing. On the other hand, since they, let's say, on that horizontal image require 1,080 pixels along the long side, let's say you upload one that's 800 pixels. Well, now they have to upsize it. And usually upsizing is even worse. It looks worse. So what you should do is resize your images yourself. If it's a square image, make sure it's 1,080 pixels along any of the sides. If it's a horizontal image, make sure it's 1,080 pixels on the long side. If it's a vertical image, they require that it be in a four to five ratio. So make sure you crop it yourself to a four to five ratio. And there's a little bit of confusion, but from what I've read, the short side should be 1,080 pixels on a vertical image. So crop it to 4.5 and make sure the short side is 1,080 pixels. Then when you upload it, they really do minimal modification to your image compared to if you send it less than 10,080 or more than 10,080. So that's why some of your images may look better than others when you upload them to Instagram. If you have an image that is 2,000 pixels along the long side on a horizontal and you upload it, they're going to resize it to 1080. It may look okay. But on the other hand, if you, an hour later, upload an image that's 4,000 pixels on the long side, they're going to resize it to 1080 and they're doing kind of more resizing. They're downsizing that one even more than the previous image. So that one might be the one that doesn't look good. So what you really should do for any social media, Facebook, you know, any of them, Instagram, Twitter, Google optimum size for image on Facebook, whatever, you know, do a Google search because quite often these requirements change. For example, for the longest time, Facebook, for a horizontal image, it was 2048 on the long side. Um, now it's 1200. So they change, you know. So, you know, they'll change the way their page looks and then their images become smaller in the case of Facebook. So now it's 1200, whereas before it was 2048. So Google every now and then what size requirements uh, site or optimum size. It's not really a requirement because they're always going to be resizing it. So if you send an image to Facebook, that's, you know, 7,000 pixels on the long side, they're going to resize it. They're not going to reject it and say, you know, it doesn't fit. They're going to resize it. So, uh, you need these optimum size requirements. You want them to do as little manipulation to your image as possible. Another thing is use the sRGB color space. Uh, typically speaking, uh, anything bigger than the sRGB color space, like the Adobe RGB color space or the Profoto RGB color space, all those colors won't be rendered on most phones or computers, even monitors for that matter. So a lot of times colors won't look right on your image. Uh, then you remember it maybe on your Adobe RGB monitor. So what you should do is just process and export in sRGB so you know what it looks like and you're going to hopefully uh, get that same rendition of the image on cell phones and things like that. So 
you know, really it's mainly you have to be aware of the size requirements or the optimum size uh, that optimum image sizes that a specific social media site uses. And then that way they're not uh, manipulating your images that much. They tend to look better if you do it as opposed to them doing it. That was a lot of words. I hope that answered the question. Um, okay, I'm considering a career in photojournalism. Any advice? You know, you know, I kind of fibbed a little. I said that I receive questions like this all the time. Actually, this question I haven't received that often, but I received it via my newsletter uh, when I asked people to send me questions. And I thought this would be a very interesting topic to talk about. Photojournalism, I wouldn't call it dying, but it is definitely downsized and changing compared to the glory days of photojournalism, which would be the 60s and 70s, which is even before I was a professional photographer. I'm old, but I'm not that old, okay? So in the 60s and 70s, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of print publications in the United States alone that did photo, photojournalistic type stories. Uh, I mean, today everyone knows National Geographic, right? They're one of the few left that are using photojournalism um, or photojournalistic style photos, you know, so a, a picture story, stories that... Um, you know, I guess what qualifies as photojournalism in general, in very general speaking terms, is a story that where at least half of the information is um, presented with images, and the other half, at least, you know, at most, I guess, is with words. And that's really what National Geographic often does. You'll see that um, there's articles, lots of words, right? But there's also lots of images with captions. So half of the information is uh, given throughout the images and the other half with words. And, and that is generally, you know, very generally speaking, okay, photojournalism type thing that uh, I guess National Geographic does. Back in the day, though, like a, a Life magazine and Look magazine, it might have been even more skewed towards the images, right? Very less on the actual written word. That's beside the point, though. The problem is there's not as many print publications anymore, be it magazines or newspapers, that there were in the 60s and 70s. They, I mean, they, they're going the way of the dinosaur, right? So there's not as many opportunities to be hired as a photojournalist. Now, many of you might argue that, okay, but like the New York Times doesn't sell as many newspapers anymore but they have a huge online presence they have the most subscribers they've ever had um, because you know just if you count their newspapers and their online subscribers they have the most subscriptions they've ever had well yeah but they're two different things back in the day you probably could remember those of you that maybe aren't old enough, you might remember your parents, your grandparents, they'd wait for the newspaper to come. The newspaper came, they would often read it almost entirely, you know, from the first page to the last page. 
section eight all the way to section D, right? They'd read the entire paper. Well, the way the world is now, and we're being bombarded with news instantly, it's a lot more um, like not, we're, we're not spending as much time just reading the news. So yes, the, Wall, uh, the New York Times has the most subscribers they've ever had, but most people don't read even the online version of the New York Times from cover to cover, for lack of a better word. They're just catching an article here or catching an article there, then they go to a different website and catch an article here, a different website, catch an article there. So it's not, it, you're not investing the time in the newspaper like they used to, or a magazine like they used to. Very uh, like fleeting. Because of that, the magazines and newspapers aren't making the advertising dollars they used to make. And the advertisers are finding, that's because the advertisers are finding that they're not getting as much bang for their buck anymore. Back when Grandpa read the New York Times from page one to, you know, the last page in section D, uh, the advertiser knew that grandpa's eyes were probably going to fall on their ad somewhere along the way. Whereas now, you know, they're probably not. And, and plus, we've become immune to these online ads. We don't even glance at them. We just go right through everything. So they're not getting uh, the same bang for their buck. And a lot of these advertisers are shifting to, believe it or not, to influencers on mainly Instagram. So, for example, uh, a company like Coach might have a new handbag coming out. And if Coach was around, I know they weren't, but let's say if Coach, they're a bad example. I agree. But if they were around in the 60s, they might take a quarter page ad out in the New York Times for their new handbag. And a lot of people would see it, and a lot of people would probably run down to Macy's or wherever and buy wherever they could buy a Coach handbag. I'm showing my ignorance about handbags. But anyway... So they, they buy the shoulder bag, you know, wherever. Whereas now, Coach could put that online ad on the New York Times website and it barely gets any interaction. But they could get a Kardashian to wear the handbag and put it a photo on Instagram and they get much more bang for their buck. So that's where the, the influencers are coming in now and stealing a big part of the advertising pie from the newspapers and magazines, so there's not as much money there. You've probably read that many newspapers are firing all their photographers because now with the advent of everyone having a cell phone, they are letting writers supply the images for the stories. And there's really not that kind of photojournalistic picture spread anymore. You don't see that anymore. You're just seeing a lot more articles with a picture here or there. So photojournalism has changed a lot. It's a lot more difficult to find work. We're also living in what they call the gig economy now, where you don't get hired anymore. You get purchased. Basically, um, you're a lifetime stringer, uh, meaning... <laughs> 
the New York Times, well, maybe it's not New York Times, but a newspaper, let's say the Buffalo News, where I live in Buffalo, they're not going to hire a photographer anymore, but they will buy your images. Uh, so they're just, you know, it's called the gig economy. They're just not hiring you, but they're buying some of your stuff. So they don't want to pay, you know, health insurance and other things that um, they might have to pay if they actually hired you to their staff. So it's very difficult to be a photojournalist nowadays. Now, with that said, there are some things you could do to help yourself. Uh, first of all, you should be willing to do just about any type of photojournalism. Uh, you know, back in the day, probably a photographer could pick and choose. You know, I want to be, you know, wildlife. I want to do. Uh, this type of photojournalism, uh, news, po politics. Now you need to do a lot of different types of things. So you might have to cover a political protest one day and then cover a wildlife, um, you know, something to do with wildlife the next day and then maybe, you know, something to do with weather another day. So you really have to be versatile in that uh, and willing to cover all those different things. The other thing is, you should learn how to shoot and edit video. Um, it nowadays, as I mentioned, uh, this you know online things going on. They don't uh, these places, including the New York Times. I keep bringing them up, but anyone, Washington Post, Buffalo News, anyone, they don't just want images anymore. They want video. So, if you're out taking photos. If you could even take rudimentary video with your cell phone, that will help because they could share that on social media like Instagram and Facebook and things. Uh, so you have to learn how to uh, take compelling video as well as compelling images. Um, even if it's just with your cell phone, but many cameras now are really having advanced um, video included in the camera so you should learn how to do it in camera as well you should learn uh, how to process video and grade video as well that will help uh, so um, a lot of times uh, too uh, especially if it's news uh, the video is needed right away so if you could do rudimentary uh, video color grading in your phone you're taking video with your phone and grade the video in your phone that would be a you know tremendous asset to you in your career. So uh, learn video, uh, really, as much as you want to learn photography, learn video, and then find requirements. A lot of times they're going to want, let's say, video for their social media feed, and it, their social media feed is mainly Instagram, so they're going to want vertical video. But maybe their social media feed is Facebook. They might want horizontal video. So you really have to understand the market, too, that you're selling to and figure out um, what they want and then learn how to shoot it. And hopefully that will help you. So uh, photo, photojournalism, it's going to be tough. Uh, you know, I'm not going to pull any punches here. The, the market is shrinking and it's changing and for all the reasons I stated. So you have to adapt and you have to be more willing to do a lot of different things. Next question. I'm in a photography rut, 
nothing I shoot looks any good, and that is making me less inspired to go out and take any pictures. It's like I'm stuck in quicksand. The more I try, the less progress I make. You know, all of us get into photography ruts. Everyone. I guarantee that the, you know, greatest photographer you could think of has got into a rut. There's a lot of different ways you could deal with it. Everyone is different. You know, it's the psychology, uh, all our psychologies are different. So all of us have different ways of dealing with things and how, you know, what could help us. I can only tell you what often helps me. And that's really two different things. Mainly, if I'm in a photography rut, and I recently was in the longest photography rut I've been in in a long time. Um, what I found is if I just put the cameras away and do something else. Sometimes I might have to do something else for a day or two. Sometimes it for a couple weeks. But pretty soon, I start getting the urge to grab the camera and take some photos. So just, you know, clear your mind of photography for a while. Do something else. Do something else creative, if possible, that isn't photography. So even if you're not an artist, you can't paint, you can't draw, you can't, you know, even, you know, stack blocks, you know, you can't do anything at all creative. The only really creative outlet you have is photography. Then still put the cameras away Then go to an art museum. Just look at art and admire art. Admire something different that isn't photography. Um, just go out if you can go on hikes and admire nature. This, the art is all around us really. And just don't even think about photography if possible. And I found that that helps me the most. Uh, the other thing you could do is do some different type of photography. Meaning if you're a portrait photographer and you're all of a sudden every portrait you take looks like crap and you just aren't inspired and you just, you know, don't think anything you're shooting looks good. Do something you've never or rarely have done. Uh, macro photography. You haven't done macro photography since you were a kid. Now, you know, get some macro lenses, uh, macro filters, whatever it takes, and take some close-ups of water droplets on flowers. Something different, right? So, so, so if you're a macro photographer, do some portraits. D whatever. If you're a landscape photographer and your landscapes have, haven't been inspiring you, then do some portraits. Do something different, something that you normally don't do. A lot of times that helps kick you in gear. Recently, I mentioned I was in the really long photography slump, and I actually had to do both of them. Uh, I, um, I went, and I wasn't really inspired. My landscape images stunk. Everything I did, my portraits just looked old-fashioned to me. I, I thought, you know, I lost everything I've ever gained. I, I thought it was horrible. So I put the cameras away for a while, and it's hard for me because I teach photography, so I really couldn't get my mind totally out of photography, right? So, But I wasn't at least taking images anymore of my own. So for maybe a good 10 days, I didn't take a photo at all. But then I started driving. I was driving through a park, and I noticed how um, they call it Phragmites. It's a type of weed, all right? So <laughs> this Phragmites, it's a type of weed, uh, big tall grass. Uh, I noticed how yellow it was and it was against a frozen lake and the lake was kind of frozen gray and it, I liked the contrast so I went home I got my camera and I took some photos and really the photos didn't look that great so then I started getting closer to the Phragmites 
and I saw how like intricately designed like all the little um, grains of the grass were at the top, right? So I got a macro lens and I started doing macros of the Phragmites, which I don't do. And that kind of kicked me into gear now. I started getting, well, that's kind of interesting. And I started seeing art. I started seeing, I started seeing the pictures again. And that actually often happens when you're in a rut. You just don't see the photos anymore. Meaning when you're really on top of your game, let's say you're a landscape photographer, you could be driving down the street and just see something and have to stop the car and take that image. And it's, you know, but when you're in a rut, you're just driving down, looking at the lines on the highway going past. You're not seeing anything and um i think that helped kick me into gear so everyone's different you're going to have to experiment with what works for you uh, but i would say try not taking photos for a while try doing other things you know if you're a cook cook enjoy the aroma smell of the food you're cooking um, the the beautiful colors of the food uh, so look at things but in a different way not in a photographic way anymore Look at the food as you as a chef would. Um, if you're hiking, look at it as a wilderness outdoor person would, uh, you know, instead of as a photographer. So try to get your mind uh, recalibrated. That's, I guess, for lack of a better term. So hopefully that helps. But everyone does this. Don't worry about it. It happens to everyone. Next question. I'd like to get my work shown in a local gallery, but I have no idea how to get that done. Any advice? Oh, yeah, this is hard. First of all, I hate to be a downer because I was such a downer on the photojournalism person. I feel bad about that. But, okay. You have to keep in mind that any given city that would have a gallery in it is probably going to be a middle to large size city, right? So you're going to talk, you know, a couple hundred thousand people to maybe several million people. Inside of that city, there's going to be uh, dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of photographers that want to get their images in the gallery. And the gallery might have three or four showings a year of photography. So it's like super difficult, right? Very, very difficult. But with that said, it's not impossible. And I guess maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. But the other thing that makes it difficult, and probably a lot of people are going to lambaste me for this, but it is kind of a, a club, meaning it's not, how good your work necessarily is, it's who you know. It's, it's maybe not, now I'm, it's a blanket statement, and that might not be true everywhere. But generally speaking, from my experience, you're just not going to walk in cold to a gallery and throw down some you know, images, and they're going to say, we got to give you a show. It doesn't work that way. Generally speaking, it's by recommendations. So it's from someone who knows someone who knows someone that could get you an in to the gallery, whoever's in charge of whatever, and they could get you a showing. Gallery has a lot of other uh, things to consider. Uh, can they make money off you? <laughs> you know. Uh, so uh, if they can't make money off you, it doesn't matter who you know. They're probably not going to show the images. But if they can make money off you, then they'll more apt be able to show you or to have um, your work in the gallery. Now, how do you go about getting into these? Well, if you're a student, if you're going to school uh, for photography, 
you're, believe it or not, the, the photography uh, professors often know everyone in the, these galleries. They have ins. That's your in. You got to really be, you know, um, picking the minds of your professors because they um, generally are the good connection to a gallery. The other thing is many times local galleries will have uh, portfolio reviews. They'll have a number of professional photographers come in and offer portfolio reviews. And that helps you get known to the gallery too. Although that will cost you some money, right? So you're going to have to pay for your portfolio review. But it helps you getting into the gallery. And you should be asking questions about who's, you know, how do you get, just ask, how do you get a, a showing in the gallery? How do you get into the gallery? Um, so that is another way you could get kind of your work out there and get it seen and kind of get an in to get to that gallery to get your images, um, whatever, whatever you want to do uh, with the gallery. So it's, it's very difficult, very difficult. Um, but um, try to foster those connections, especially if you're a student with your professor or professors they usually have ins to the galleries. And um, if you're not a student, uh, try to get portfolio reviews if they have them. Also, a lot of galleries uh, have memberships. Um, become a member of the gallery. Uh, kind of go to the meetings or whatever they have, the get-togethers, a hobnob. You got to try to sell yourself um, and, you know, see if, that helps you. Um, you know, so the, this up there, I'm talking in very broad terms. I mean, there's a lot of different ways or different types of gallery showings. If you're doing a, some type of photojournalistic thing, uh, maybe you're photographing, you know, homeless people in your city or, you know, or uh, drug users, drug use in your city. So that's kind of more of a photojournalistic bent. Uh, if the gallery doesn't show work like that, you'll never get that work in, right? On the other hand, maybe that's all the gallery shows. And if you're a landscape shooter, you're never going to get your landscape images in there. So you have to really know the market too and know the gallery and what they like and what they want. So hopefully that will help. Um, again, I'm sorry to be such a downer on that, but it's very difficult. Would you recommend joining a camera club? Um, yes. I have a caveat though. Okay, um, especially if you're a beginner, uh, join a camera club. There's, there's a lot of benefits to camera clubs generally. And, you know, again, they're painting with a wide brush. Not every camera club is equal or the same. But generally speaking, a camera club is going to have a big variety of people that are in it, meaning there's going to be some really beginners like you. There's going to be some people more in the middle, and there's going to be some really great photographers in the camera club. And what my experience has been, the really great photographers usually are really willing to help the beginners so this will really help your development um so yeah by all means you you're especially if you're a beginner join a camera club uh the other thing an advantage of joining a camera club they often will have um workshops and seminars and things where they'll bring in an expert in something to talk or to demonstrate something or to show something uh some of the bigger camera clubs might even be able to bring uh, manufacturer representatives in so someone from sony will come in and talk about their sony cameras and if you hit, you're a sony shooter you could ask questions about specific things about your camera or, or whatever you know nikon whatever 
So lots of advantages to joining the Camera Corps Club. Now I want to let you know about one thing that you should be aware of and be careful about when you're in a camera club. Sometimes, actually most often, I've often found with the camera club, it suddenly kind of devolves into this great groupthink, meaning everyone starts doing the same thing. And you start to lose your individuality if you're in the camera club, if you're not careful. For example, let's say a lot of times camera clubs go out shooting. They go on a shooting excursion, whatever they want to call it. They're for the few hours a day, once a month, they go to a specific place and take images. And let's say this day they're going to the Snapple factory and you're going to get an insider's tour of the making of Snapple iced tea and drinks and things and the bottling of it and all this stuff. So you got this large group of people in there all with their cameras and there you see the machinery of the the brewing of the tea, the bottling of the tea, the bottling of the bottles and all that stuff. And people are taking images. And what you often will see is that some of the more innovative, better photographers maybe um, will kind of like get into a position, uh, get a certain angle, uh, have the light in a certain way and take an image. And other people will see that photographer. Wow, that was a great idea. And then you'll see almost a line of people taking that same exact shot. So what ha devolves is you have a certain small group, maybe two or three uh, photographers that are being very innovative and doing different types of shots. And then you have a larger group that is just imitating what they're doing. And no one is developing their own photographic eye. They're just copying. And you have to be careful you don't do that. You have to be uh, develop your own style, develop your own eye. Um, so if there's like, let's say, two photographers that are super innovative, very good, they're kind of leaders of the group, and, and they're doing uh, specific things, taking shots a specific way, and you're just imitating that, well, maybe if you thought about it and processed the scene in front of you and thought of different things, a way you could exploit the scene in your own voice, you would have done something different that could have been better than what they were doing. But if you aren't careful, you'll just be a follower and you'll just be taking the same shots over and over and over. So be aware of that. That is a downside of a camera club. And, and um, I think you need to be careful of that. Um, but other than that, especially if you're a beginner, beginner, uh, Camera Club could really help you. And I think you could learn a lot. And it will really uh, accelerate your learning. So those are five relatively common questions that I often receive. I thought, and they were questions that I can answer with words. And I used an awful lot of words. My apologies. I just want to thank everyone, though, for tuning into the podcast. Um, recently found out that the podcast is one of the top photography podcasts in Sweden. I'm not sure why in Sweden, but thank you everyone in Sweden. Uh, but, uh, other than that, uh, thank you everyone that watches my videos, that listens to this podcast, that, um, you know, subscribes to my newsletter, all that good stuff. I really do appreciate it. Thank you for watching my podcast for the joy of photography. Remember, stop by my website, onlinephotographytraining.com. There you'll find all my latest videos and articles to 
help you improve your photography. That's it for now. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you.